0: welcome to speed of science the podcast this series was created by science gallery at trinity college dublin and is supported by pfizer speed of science is a specially created window exhibition where we examine the world we live in now and what the world could look like in the future Speed of Science is an evolution of 2019's We Are All Scientists, an exhibition that examined the characteristics we all have that we use when we think scientifically. Speed of Science examines how we have all been called upon to be scientists in our response to the coronavirus pandemic. This podcast series examines the role vaccines play in our daily lives, from personal scale, where we hear about how vaccines work inside our bodies, to looking at community or herd immunity and how that functions and then onto a more global scale, where we understand the current context of vaccine development and what we can hope for from the future. Featuring conversations between Science Gallery mediators and lead researchers in Trinity College Dublin, we hope that this will be an enlightening and enjoyable experience. This episode features Professor Ed Lavelle in conversation with Science Gallery mediator Lee Sherlock, looking at the global context of vaccine development.
1: Um, so first, I was just kind of wondering um, if you could explain and elaborate a little bit first about um, what is, what is it that you do in your lab and how does it affect um, other people's lives once you've kind of developed a particular piece of research? Okay, so the main thing we do in the lab is try
2: to develop new strategies for vaccines, for uh, both for infection, so for bacteria and now for viruses and also for cancer. And specifically what we do are work on these things called adjuvants that probably most people in the public had never heard of till a couple of months ago, but now we hear about them every day. We've been kind of working on these for about 20 years. So essentially what adjuvants are, are um, components you can put into a vaccine to make the, to give you a stronger immune response than, than you get in the absence of it. So um, I suppose one of the biggest things that's happened in, in vaccination over the last couple of decades is a move away from using whole, so whole organisms. So like a whole virus or a whole bacterium that was either dead or modified so it couldn't cause disease in a human, but it can give you immune responses. Uh, we're still using those and they're very effective. Moving towards using individual bits of the, the virus, the bacterium, which are even safer. But once you do that, you tend to get uh, insufficient immune responses. So what you do is you mix something called an adjuvant with those and that gives you a higher immune response. So what my lab really does are try to find new adjuvants, um, to get better immune responses for viruses and cancer. And secondly, try to understand how the adjuvants we have actually work. That it's, um, we've got a lot of adjuvants that have been used in humans for a long time, but we haven't got a perfect understanding of why they do certain jobs really well and other jobs less well. So I think it's those two things, new adjuvants and try to
1: resolve um, how adjuvants actually activate the immune system. Yeah. So basically looking into the mechanism of, of play and how they interact with the, the biochemical landscape. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then we're kind of seeing as well, which is quite, in, you, you kind of um, hit on it quite briefly. We're kind of seeing then a move away from the traditional approach, which was to inject a whole dead virus into um, an individual in order to generate a um, some type of immunity. Um, but now we're seeing individuals such as like Pfizer, for example, were using an mRNA approach uh, in order to generate a vaccine. So could you give maybe some insights into what makes this particular approach so advantageous in contrast to the more traditional approaches? Um, well, there's a number, a number
2: of advantages. I mean, what people, some people are concerned about the speed at which everything is going. What people haven't appreciated is a lot of these novel technologies like RNA vaccines and DNA vaccines and viral vectors. That's all been happening for the last decade or two in the background. So, so people had developed those that even gone to clinical trials but it wasn't news at the time. So it's not like people miraculously picked up these technologies in January and started running with them. They were developing them, not not, not for COVID, but for other viruses or for cancer. Um, so one of the advantages is this kind of plug, people call it plug and play concept where you develop a system that you know works um, in, a, in a particular context to drive antibodies or drive T cells. And, then you can be confident if you just slot a different cassette essentially. What you're doing with coronavirus is taking this S or spike protein out of the virus and slotting it into this cassette that's being developed for other viruses. So the advantage there is you could move very quickly. Once people have sequenced the um, uh, the virus back in whenever that was, January probably, and knew the sequence of the S spike protein, then these companies could slot that, that, that um, nucleic acid into the vector. And very, very quickly, literally within Within weeks, they had a vaccine that was ready for testing. Whereas, in the past, um, it might have taken it would have taken more time to identify what was causing the disease. It would have taken an awful lot longer to develop systems for growing it up. So, that's the, so, if you use a traditional approach, you have to find a way to grow the virus in very large amounts to be able to kill it or to attenuate it. That that takes time. So, uh, a big advantage is probably the speed at which you can operate at. And 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 as well as that, they weren't starting from zero. People have to, I think it's a misconception that's concerning certain individuals, that this completely unknown technology, like, okay, no one's ever made a vaccine, it's gone to humans, or gone and, like, been approved in a vaccine, but they've gone to clinical trials, they've shown that it's safe, they've shown you can, they've done like a million experiments to optimize this kind of system that you can slot things
1: into. Yeah, and also SARS isn't necessarily a new virus either. We've known about this for quite some time in bats as well. It's just this particular mutation that we're seeing kind of um, forcing this pandemic to take place is new to us. Um, but we've known about, um, obviously, some of the sequences that have been at play there too, right? Well, I mean, this is... So SARS-CoV-2 is a new virus for humans that
2: we had not had to deal with before. We've had other coronaviruses, like MERS and SARS, and obviously some coronaviruses that cause the cold. And the S, their spike protein, is also a key in terms of other other coronavirus infections. So I suppose people know a fair bit about coronaviruses, but wouldn't have known much about this um, specific virus itself. I think, like, the key yeah. thing is, I mean... Uh, Hopefully, one thing makes this makes people appreciate. And I think it has is the, the value of it, of really investing in research because the capacity, obviously, to sequence viruses, the capacity to engineer systems, to have the computing power to kind of optimize this, these systems in vitro has allowed people to move a lot faster in those early months. You weren't, you know, in another in another era, you could have been. At this point, you might be only at the point where you had um, managed to grow up enough for the virus. You know what I mean? So the technology has been massively beneficial.
1: So it's obviously it's clear that um, a, a risk factor won't be necessarily an issue well uh, as issue is um, with this particular vaccine. Um, but still it's still public perception um, that uh, a lot of the adjuvants and a lot of um, the components of that vaccine um, are cause for concern, in particular um, adjuvants such as alum. Um, I know a lot of people um, have concern because it's aluminium-based and they don't want to put a heavy metal in their body. And the same thing also happened not only now, but I remember in the case of the swine flu vaccine, um, individuals weren't taking a swine flu vaccine because it had a mercury-based preservative in it. Um, Now, I think it came out later that there was five times more mercury concentration in a can of tuna than there ever was in that vaccine. Um, But there's this kind of public perception out there that um, if we put heavy metals into um, vaccines or if we use these particular type of adjuvants, they are unsafe. So I was just wondering, could you give us some insight into the kind of uh, safety profile of something like alum? Yeah, well, I think those conversations are very unfortunate. I mean, the reason we have phase one, phase two,
2: phase three clinical trials and, and post approval um, tracking of, of responses is because these are all safeguards that have been put in place. So you don't release unsafe vaccines. Al- alum has been used, I mean, it's really unfortunate through this conversation, it's not, not with you, but in uh, the last while. Alum has been used for the best part of 100 years. I mean, Alum has literally saved, if you think of diseases like tetanus, diphtheria, um, hepatitis B, uh, the injectable polio vaccine, these vaccines only work because Alum is a component of them. So I don't know how many lives Alum has saved, but it's a—it's uh, ginormous numbers. Uh, a lot. <laughs> all, all of us have had Alum multiple times. I mean, certainly my kids, myself, everyone I know, no one has ever that I'm aware of had a significant um, issue with them. So the, the, the clinical trials tell you, rather than being obsessed about this metal or this thing is, is dangerous in a different context, what's important is the formulation that's put into the vaccine, that's tested on millions of human beings, or used and gives you protection without any any really strong evidence of negative side effects. That's the evidence you need. Going off and finding out Aluminium in a different context, in a different material, in the ground or in something else, is an issue. Trying to trying to conflate those two things is really dangerous. This is not true. The reason you have clinical trials is to show that specific formulation that you're using is safe. Not not that I mean you could do that with anything in life. You can say there's some individual component of food that if you took in a huge amount in a different context is dangerous. But that's not relevant. What's relevant is is the food you're eating. That specific thing is that safe or not? So I think. I think we have a huge amount to thank Alan for if you look at human history over the last 100 years and coming along almost 100 years later and saying this is dangerous is going against almost a century of human experience.
1: Yeah. And it um, eh- with regard to, I, I, I see that there's a lot of people, especially when it comes to um, anti-vaxxers and also kind of anti-lockdown movement now, which is kind of taking place uh, across Dublin. We're, we're seeing a lot of those guys on O'Connell Street, right? Um, they kind of advocate for that, um, you know, live with the virus, um, herd immunity type approach. Um, I was wondering kind of if you've maybe thought about this and maybe Todd, if we were to take that direction as a population, have you thought about the, the results um, that we would face and the outcomes uh, uh, as uh, as a civilization? I mean, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not an expert in this. I think it'd be a
2: huge uh, human experiment to undertake. I think you want mad to take the risk. I mean, the, the logical thing to do is develop a vaccine. We've spent decades developing vaccine technology, developing the systems to uh, test the safety of vaccines, to have regulators, etc. That, that's a, that's our biggest defence strategy we have. So what, so it makes sense that we mobilise that strategy, make a safe and effective vaccine. So we know from the past that diseases that were horrendous killers of humans like polio um, and even like tetanus or uh, measles that caused huge issues in Dublin until a couple of decades ago were, have been fully controlled. So people have forgotten about those diseases because they're controlled by vaccines. They didn't miraculously disappear, those diseases. They're controlled by vaccines. Every kid is, gets those vaccines and you control them in the population. So um, th- that's, I think, a, a huge gift to humanity, that that capacity to do that and to de- further develop the technology allows you to move faster now and get those in the population rather than taking a, a, a risk. The reason vaccines are there to av- are to avoid us doing human, exper- human experiments with very nasty pieces that have unknown consequences in the future. I, mean, we don't, I think it's an incredible risk um, to expose people to try and do an experiment like that when we have options I mean I think we have the chance to develop but obviously people are frustrated that you can't have a vaccine today or tomorrow but um, I think you have to have a safety first approach and I'd be very confident that we will have vaccines by well I don't know no point in putting dates on it but say into, into next year it will people be vaccinated the challenge obviously you're probably going to come to that is how do we vaccinate 7 billion people or whatever number of people on the planet I mean that's a completely new challenge so that was done obviously with a much smaller population but smallpox, that took a long time in terms of, I mean, you almost have to bring in a different, a whole different mobilization of individuals who are capable of running international campaigns. Like polio is a good example. Like polio hasn't been fully eliminated yet, even though we've been close to elimination probably for about 10 years. And it's really down to uh, global mobilization, like really high quality epidemiology and find out where, where are the outbreaks. I mean, it's always said with polio that an outbreak of polio anywhere is an issue for the whole planet. So it's not just an issue of, okay, you have polio in Afghanistan, who cares? Well, obviously it's terrible for Afghanistan, but it's actually a risk to the whole world in terms of these getting out. I think it would, be, it would be similar here in terms of you have to start with, you know, frontline workers, people at high risk, and then over a period of time, try and find out, you know, root it out wherever it is and get to it. So that, that is going to be a, you know, a huge global
1: project to make that happen. Yeah, obviously once obviously once we get the vaccine kind of up and running we do perfect it and getting it out there as you say is going to be um it's going to be a huge task. Um but I think one of the biggest problems as well is um a lot of people kind of assume that um like you were saying they forget the work that was done by the vaccines and how and um, we've kind of dri- driven out a lot of the uh, measles mumps uh, those things. Um and even I, I know that the anti vaxxer movement they don't correlate um you know the the they call it a coincidence between um, vaccines being used and getting rid of something like the the measles, but. Um I think they they kind of contributed more towards herd immunity, um, which is a really unfortunate thing um, because it allows, like you were saying, smaller populations then to carry on that particular virus. Um, and you used the case of, let's say, Afghanistan. Um, obviously, rolling out a worldwide initiative is just as important because it means then that we don't have um, problems later on down the line once we kind of get lax with, um, with the administration, that it doesn't uh, blow up again. I mean, a prime example of that was maybe a couple of years ago, um, with Ebola right and um, there was a small population in Africa and um, now obviously Ebola is quite an interesting one because it's a, it's a self-limiting virus in that regard and um, it kind of kills the host way too fast for it to get out and um, but if there was a, a, another virus let's say the, the coronavirus here and we became lax on smaller populations just once the western civilization was okay it would be detrimental to us at one point or another and um, just for not kind of helping those guys out you mentioned there a minute ago, I think it's really, maybe it's the most convincing way that I was a little bit involved with the
2: promoting the men B vaccine. This has gone back probably a bit less than 10 years ago. Um, and there, basically, you brought patient groups together and you had individuals who, who, would be, who had had men B and survived who had lost children, who had lost limbs, who had lost fingers or toes, who had a lifetime of going to hospitals. I mean, you don't want to do that. You don't want to have to do that. But sometimes you have to do that. It's only about putting people into a room and saying, this is the reality of this disease. This is what it's done to this individual. His life will never be the same. And all the people around them, their life will never be the same either. This is why it's important to develop a vaccine. And sometimes it's like, it was like that papillomavirus vaccine. It's that lady in Clare with cervical cancer that really came out and promoted the vaccine. said, This is the reality of this disease. This has killed me. I think you almost need that. Sometimes um, this shouldn't be an abstract conversation or a political conversation. These diseases were kind of uh, had a massive impact on human civilization, and would still be doing so if we hadn't done something about it. So I think, that's why I think if we can find a way to take the politics out of vaccination and just look at the reality of what these diseases can do, what they did do in the past, that the reality is the development of societies we have in the West, are only possible because we were not at the mercy of these,
1: these diseases that used to kind of torment us, you know, until very recently. Yeah, there's, there's obviously a lot of people in kind of uh, less developed parts of the world that are also dependent on us generating these because, I mean, as you say, we do have the and we do have the luxury of, um, kind of researching them a little bit further. And it's also a really important topic as well to kind of talk about, you know, um, the ignorance of some people, um, when it comes to generating a vaccine, because like you were saying, um, with the, with the HPV, um, you know, some people are, are, are suffering quite badly from these, um, and if we don't generate something um, such as a vaccine quite soon, we will be putting the individuals that are immunocompromised and post-surgery, for example, post-transplant surgery, and we'll be putting those guys at risk, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think one of the key issues, if you look at the um, perception
2: of vaccines globally, we um, find it um, positively towards vaccination is generally much higher in developing countries than in some developed countries. And that's partly because those countries know the impact that these diseases these diseases aren't something that their grandparents died of. They're, they're, they're aware of it in their country or in their community. And they see the huge benefits of vaccination. I mean, I think we had lots of conversations in the last, before COVID, about saying, how do we increase awareness? And one way to do it is get people to think about, okay, what did your grandparents die of? What did your great-grandparents die of? And obviously, some people don't know. But once you start going back, suddenly you find out, okay, actually, that person died of uh, polio, or that person got tuberculosis, or someone else got a diet of septicemia. And that that suddenly rocks people back to reality is this notion of living in a world where infectious diseases have no impact on your health whatsoever. um, It's been a very fortunate, hopefully we get back to it next year, but that's been a very fortunate period where you were able to forget about it. After the Second World War, effective vaccines, antibiotics, meant most people forget about infections. And then almost think they're gone. like That was history. But it's not not history.
1: Those haven't disappeared. They're being controlled by vaccination. Yeah, they're, they're still in some corners of you're treading, treading us in some, in some form of capacity. It's much closer to you. I mean,
2: um, like, Clostridium tetanus is in the soil. You don't have to go that far. It's cut your hand. The reason you get a tetanus is they're in the soil. If you look at an example, after the breakdown of the USSR, there was disruption to the health service uh, there for a short period of time. And what you saw was a huge spike all of a sudden in diphtheria from almost nothing to significant numbers overnight. So you don't even think about this is historic, this is miraculous, things have disappeared. Uh, There are examples where if you stop vaccination campaigns, the diseases come back. And that's just reality. There are some unfortunate examples like that one
1: to show you that this is the reality of what happens. Yeah. Uh, And um, it was quite interesting because obviously through our last kind of like 40 minutes or so, um, there's been multiple times where you suggested that um, you don't think science and politics should be intertwined. Um, but. Unfortunately, I think we live in a world where they're becoming increasingly intertwined. And I was just wondering, do you as an individual or kind of as an educator or a um, science communicator, do you feel that, um, you know, having that, um, you know, having politics and science so close to one another is detrimental to the the spreading of awareness um, of, of Factual information and having individuals such as Trump in the world, um, do you think his voice threatens the community as a whole? Yeah, I mean, I, I, absolutely.
2: I think that I mean that vaccines are are not political. They're trying to like the one of the biggest threats to humanity forever has been infectious diseases. One of the reasons we've been able to develop and not worry about our kids dying at childbirth or women dying at childbirth or losing kids early on due to you know infectious diseases has been vaccination. So that's been good for everyone. It's been good for society. It's allowed lifting people out of poverty. It's had massive benefits. And I think just it's hard to imagine that we would have got to a point where politicians were actually actively um, challenging the benefits of vaccination. Because for me, the vaccines are for everybody. They're not for one population, they're not for one nation, they're not for one age group. They're a way of liberating us from this scourge that we, we dealt with until until like the last century.
1: Yeah. Um, so, like, one, one of the things that you're saying there is obviously uh, vaccines are for everyone, and it, it, it's definitely a right of an individual to have access to those. And um, do you have any ideas, um, you know, mechanisms in which we could kind of bring those prices down and make these things a little bit more accessible? Yeah. Well, if you look at like if you look at an Irish context, you have a standard vaccination campaign that covers multiple things.
2: I mean, they don't pay for those. I mean, that, that's that's provided by the government as as it should be. I think I think with something like a zoster vaccine. For the elderly, that you pay for that, but that's a choice. People can think, I, you know, I want to take the risk of getting... Uh, that's a bit different. Um, but for vaccines that are for the for protection of young children, they should be provided by the state, in my mind. There shouldn't be any cost associated. With it. I think when we get to a point, hopefully in the future, with... Uh, so one of the challenges here is all of these new technologies. have People have spent, like, billions developing these technologies to a certain point. So they have to be given a fair price by governments to actually mean that they can pay back in terms of doing it. I think what we really hope to get to in the next 10, 20 years are vaccines for cancer, for example. And and there, I mean, if you look now with, say, checkpoint blockers for cancer, they cost huge amounts of money. But again, they've taken decades and vast investment to generate it. And I think probably most people would be willing to pay or what the health service, like tens of thousands, to say that. There's always the issue with those conditions of What's the cost of not doing this in terms of this individual spending, you know, months or years in in, in hospital or having multiple surgeries? Now, this different movement to cancer vaccines—it's a different direction we're going in. But I think there has to be appreciation on both sides that the reason you have all this cool uh, technology that can be tested for COVID is has been a huge investment by these companies, largely and by academics as well, to develop these in the background for the last 10, 20 years. So obviously, they can't just give them away for free after like they've got thousands who people working for the companies etc etc etc.
1: Uh Yeah, it's, it's definitely important that they they see some sort of profit otherwise those companies will go under and next of all we'd be no uh, you know no less better off than uh, some of the kind of less developed countries in the world. Um so obviously that's an that's an important aspect and you were kind of hitting on um, some other really um, interesting ideas which was the the concept of um, Vaccines against cancer um, and the, the kind of optional um, approach that may be taking place um, later on down the line. So, do you think that we're going to eventually end up moving into a world where um, these types of vaccines are not necessary, but I mean they are at an extortion price, but they are completely optional. You can go with or without them. Um, and would you agree with that approach? Do you think it's like with cancer? I mean,
2: so I suppose one cancer vaccine we have is the HPV vaccine, which is vaccine against the virus that causes cancer. Um, that, that won't be, that'll be a, an exception rather than the rule because not all, you know, in most cases, we don't know specific viruses that are responsible or I mean, it's not caused by a virus. Uh, so there you're going to be going directly into the patient. So it will be very patient specific. You won't be making a generic vaccine that's given to large groups of people. And, that, and then it becomes more like a three-year really therapy like it have now. I mean, so checkpoint blockers or specific types of chemotherapy, etc. it will be a bit more along those lines. I mean, hopefully, highly effective and safer. But, um, that won't be something that will be rolled out across populations. It will be, you know, I think given to people who already have cancer, which is quite different. I mean, the idea of a therapeutic vaccine where you give it to someone afterwards, rather than what we're talking about now is a, like prophylactic vaccine. The ideal thing is to give a vaccine to young kids
1: and that will give protection whether they get it as a child or get it uh, later in life. So moving on to that area of um, preventative medicine um, rather than developing a form of therapeutics is... I to be faced with therapeutics though because...
2: Um, cancers are so variable from person to person. There are huge differences from one cancer type to another. So I think there, where that some of that field is going is really trying to find ways to make your own tumor more immunogenic, so your immune system comes and attacks more efficiently. I think that's where that field is going. But I, that, I, that won't be a case where you're vaccinating whole populations. I think it, it'll be it'll be patient specific.
1: Um, um, I'd like to just kind of thank you for taking the time out and um, having this back and forth. Thank you.
0: That was Speed of Science, the podcast, brought to you by Science Gallery at Trinity College Dublin and Pfizer. Thank you for joining us today and be sure to check out the other podcasts in this series.